0: podcast. Here are your hosts,
1: Timothy and Renee. Hey everybody, welcome to Tonebenders. I will be your host today. My name is Tim Muirhead, and with me is Teresa Morrow. How are you doing, Teresa? Doing good, Tim. Excellent. So today we are going to be playing an interview that we did a little while ago. Teresa and I went to Montreal. We set up a bunch of interviews with the people in that town because we think it's a really interesting town for the work that's being done in sound post-production. And uh, we're going to talk a bit about that in the interview. Today we have Gavin Fernandez and Martin Pinsenot, who both worked on uh, the HBO prestige series, Big Little Lies.
2: Martin was a sound supervisor for season one of that show, and Gavin Fernandez was one of the mixers on that show, or one of the re-recording mixers on that show, along with Louis Gignac.
1: Yeah, so we were lucky enough to go to Premium Sound, one of the big facilities in Montreal, and actually go in the room where they mix that show. And we talked to them about uh, various things amongst them, what it's like to kind of be mixing satellite on an L.A. production, mixing it in Montreal and how they uh, worked with the L.A. supervisors and teams. Gavin and Martin know each other because they've been working with Jean-Marc Vallée for a very long time from his early French films into his first English films. And then once he became the director for Big Little Lies, he brought them on board.
2: Yeah, I feel like um, people know Jean-Marc Vallée's work and they know his name. They may not realize that he is a Quebec-based director and that there's this uh, quite significant and well-developed post-production and production uh, film and audio scene in Montreal. And that's part of why we were interested to go there to make the connection.
1: For sure. So Jean-Marc Vallée is Dallas Buyers Club, a uh, Wild, starring Reese Witherspoon and uh, many other films that I'm sure everybody's a big fan of. So a lot of times when uh, people work in their hometown and then get kind of called up to the big leagues of Hollywood, they tend to leave the hometown behind. But Jean-Marc Vallet has been very uh, dedicated to his hometown and made sure that the post-production is still going through Montreal. And uh, Gavin, who we're going to hear from, worked on Jean Vallée's next major project, which was Sharp Objects, also for HBO, And uh, we just thought it would be a really interesting thing to kind of go see how Montreal is kind of keeping its own identity while working in this uh, bigger ocean now.
2: Yeah, so we appreciate them coming on the show with us. It was a while ago now that we did that. This is we're talking about season one of the uh, series. Season two is going to be launching, I think, in June. Yeah. uh, With uh, not entirely the same sound crew, but uh, all of these people have gone on to, if not work on um, Big Little Lies, a lot of other interesting shows.
1: Yeah, and Martin Pinsenot is a returning champion to Tonebenders. He's been (laughs) on two previous episodes. He was on to talk about uh, Jean-Marc Vallée's Dallas Buyers Club way back. He was one of our first guests, I think, is episode 14 and then, also in episode 79, he was part of the sound effects recording roundtable that we put out.
2: So, we appreciate their participation. Uh, Martin has always been great. And uh, thank you to Gavin. Also, he was really entertaining, and I think you'll enjoy this talk.
1: Yeah, and uh, keep an eye out. Martin Pinsano just started releasing sound effect libraries under the Sonomar collection that you can get through Pro Sound Effects. The first library is out, and it's a bass machine. And it's too hard to explain, you got to go listen to it. It's this kind of homemade instrument that he makes all these crazy sound design elements out of. So go uh, check that out. And we started the interview by asking them how they approach Big Little Lies, because it's not quite a feature film, but it's more than a regular TV show. It kind of sits in that world between TV and film. And we asked them if that affects their approach.
3: The way we've been uh, on board with Big Little Lies, we've always heard that it's the equivalent of three films. Mm -hmm. So um, it's tougher because it's the schedule of a TV show, but it's the result, the creative result of a feature film. So uh, it it puts more pressure, I'd say. The, The
0: discussions that happened in this room were no different than the discussions that happened during Dallas or during Demolition. Um, they were the same artistic discussions. So I don't think there's any change to the way we do it, but definitely this pattern of it, I mean, like trying to fit in, you know, okay, so now we got to do it, you're not doing just one dialogue evaluation for the whole film. It's like, okay, so we're going to slug a dialogue evaluation here at 11 o'clock at night, and then we're going to do this one at, uh, to, there was very much that that superimposed TV schedule on top of it. It's, it's tough to do, um, but it's also... Once again, it, it shows in the, in the overall product at the end. There weren't a lot of compromises as far as you know. It's like it's a TV show. It's like we have you know eight hours to do the final mix and you know let's get it out the door sort of thing because we have we have to start the next dialogue premix tomorrow morning. That that wasn't there. It was like no, we're going to work on it until everyone's happy with it, and then especially until John Mark's happy with it, and then we'll move on from there.
1: This wasn't the first time you guys both worked with him.
0: Martin has a long-standing relationship with him, and I've been on board since 2008 in Victoria. So, yeah. myself and Louis. Louis, it's been part of that team since then. He, he, I don't think he ever planned on doing TV, and these two TV series have come out of uh, the fact that the Janis Joplin movie... Fell through, which he was doing with Amy Adams. And she said, Well, I'm going to do something at HBO. Maybe you should come on board with that. And and then Reese heard that he was ma- thinking of doing the other HBO thing. And she said, well, well, before you do that, why don't you come on board with ours? Um, and so he's been adapting to it. You know, like there was a learning curve involved in that. Uh, that, you know, the first mixer he was saying, saying, Oh, you know, I want it really well. I want people to lean into their TVs to hear that and saying, you know, you got to be a little careful of that because it's a little bit different than feature film where you got them on the edge of your seats but in a controlled environment at their homes. You know. That being said, we didn't always win those battles. You know, uh, what was artistically right was what it is. And HBO was incredibly supportive. They almost gave him carte blanche um, to do what he wanted with the series. I think, you know, they, they, I don't think they fought him, but I think that, you know, there was a lot more negotiations as as they started the process and then towards the end of the process they said uh, well if jean-marc's good with it we're good with it sort of thing you know it's been a good ride so you know and we can't like i said can't argue with the results so w- working with him has been fantastic in that it's opened a lot of other doors too you know
3: well yeah um even though we didn't meet each other when we were at university uh, jean-marc and i um we both f- studied in film studies and um, he's a bit y- uh, older than me, so uh, we didn't meet then. But uh, around the time when we studied films, uh, we we, uh, we we were both at the, pretty much at the same time, where the independent filmmakers in the states such as uh, Scorsese or Coppola or the Cohen brothers or, w- were rising and. Uh, Personally, uh, I have to say that when I, I discovered the relationship that uh, Coppola had with uh, his uh, sound uh, editor, uh, that was uh, Walter Murch then, or uh, even um, Alan Splet with uh, David Lynch, where actually they they were uh, becoming some sort of a team, with Alan Splet uh, being uh, the sound and, and but helping the others. That was kind of the aiming. Uh, the idea was trying to help a director to make a movie and trying to to use my uh, expertise and talents and put it in, in a film and trying to help a director to just uh, bring to life. So uh, it's under these uh, circumstances that it all started. Uh, I, I, I was part of his first uh, feature film. I was a sound editor back then. I wasn't a supervisor. So uh, we met each other uh, at, on Liste Noir in 1995. And um, and since then, I... I, I, I actually uh, forgot about that, because I recorded fully for that. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I forgot about that. Well, So you, you pretty much uh, did yeah, almost yeah, them all, except yeah, crazy, we, we I guess. We met back then. <laughs> crazy? You didn't do crazy, but... No. You, you. no, So it's kind of this very uh, personal, intimate, creative relationship. So that's what uh, actually uh, it is with, with John Mark. And... Uh, the fact that he's been uh, offered all these, uh, these uh, great uh, films uh, was a, a great occasion for us to actually be able to test ourselves and, and even to learn also, because uh, that's another thing. With, with John Mark, there's a lot of learning. Uh, because uh, it's the first time we do this, so the first time we do something, we learn. So uh, there's a lot of learning in every film, and and, uh, it's crazy what I learned on Crazy, and it's crazy what I learned on Young Victoria. Remember all the work we did on on Foley editing? Uh, That made me realize a lot of stuff at that time, and on all of these experiences, there's some things that we learn, and we can bring them from one to the other. So it grows, and it gets more uh, delicate, more precise as, uh, as time goes by. And also it can serve all the others as well. Because once you learn something, you can apply it on all the other experience you have in your life.
0: It's funny that you should bring up Walter Murch, because Walter Murch often wore the picture editor and sound editor hats on a lot of the projects that he worked on. Um, and it's interesting, because one of the things that Martin brought to the table was Martin's editor, Paul, actually works on an Avid at the picture editing facilities or at his home, whichever. So it's it's almost like, as opposed to being the picture editor and then putting in the sounds you want, now that part of the process, part of Martin's team, was at the picture facility putting in the sounds there to get them in as early as possible so that it, they didn't get used to what often would happen would be that temp love thing where they would get used to some other sound and all of a sudden anything even... "Quote unquote, a better sound or a more clean sound, whatever, might might work better. The idea was to get in the door as early as possible. Yeah. Did you ever consider being a picture editor? No, 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 <laughs> God forbid.
2: Was <laughs> <laughs> it Paul cuts on the Avid? He cut sound on Avid.
0: He was cutting sound on Avid. Oh, yeah.
2: Interesting. Hmm.
3: Well, it's something we started. Uh, I think uh, on Dallas uh, byerslaw because. Uh, One of the problems when we put sound on during picture edit is that sometimes it's kind of a guide track and it's most of the times the people that put the sound on the picture edit, the sounds, they don't have the rights to use these sounds. They come from all over the place, from the internet, so it ends up being thrown away right after and we as a team need to redo it entirely. So uh, throughout time, we, we realized that that was kind of crazy to spend all this time to build it and then to throw it away. So we thought it'd be good to um, to actually provide the picture at the department with the good sounds. So at least they would put some good sounds on the kite track so that it, it would actually represent pretty much a good start as a bass. So, uh, that, that was phase one. So that was phase <laughs> one, actually, yeah. Uh, the, and when on Big Little Lies, we went on phase two, they they said, okay, it's good, you provided us with all the grooves, those sounds, but now we, we'd like to have someone that actually puts it on the picture edit. So
0: it took it away, took that out of the hands of the assistant picture editors and put it in the hands of the sound editors who had to
3: work right. on the app. We, we decided to, to bring one of the members of the sound team into the picture department so that we would actually have someone right in there to put the first the, the sounds and, and to make sure that the the first proposal for the director, Scott, and the uh, HBO approval, it would have a, actually a sound that would be really uh, uh, interesting with music that usually uh, is, is also going to be released after and some good sound with some dialogue adjustments as well. So so it's it gets to HBO in a good condition.
2: And that's appro- a process that starts while there's still fine cutting or even before that?
3: Oh, from day one of edit.
2: Wow. Yeah. This is a revolutionary concept. It is, I like it. It is. It's not
0: something, it's also, I don't think it's a workflow that can be applied to regular network stuff. You know, I just got through a series with Universal and, and there's different levels of openness to this. So I think this works because he has carte blanche and final say on a lot of stuff. I don't think it would work in a, in a structure where there'd be multiple approval processes. Uh, HBO has, you know, had said on on the next one they probably don't even want to see anything until first like, set of conforms are done after the the producers cuts. Uh, they don't even want to see rough cuts and stuff. So, so
3: that's you know that that makes this workflow a little bit easier to work with. Mm-hmm. Well, if as you just said, if we'd be waiting for the picture lock, we would actually be waiting. So that's not the way to work with. The, where with John Mark, it's more like to see things ahead. So we were we would release some kind of a soft lock at one point. Well, we could have a pre-lock, soft lock, soft lock one, <laughs> you know a soft lock two, and things like that. so so we would get the, the things ahead, but it's not finished. That's the idea. It's like we we have it, we know it's gonna change. We don't know how much, although, Because I have been working with him a long time, I know what can change. I I can evaluate a bit roughly how it can be, but it's kind of a bet that we make at start saying, okay, we're going to work on the soft lock. We're going to do as much as we can on it. And then when we get the picture lock, or actually the version we're going to mix on, then we're going to conform it and do the turnaround. So. but well, we, we, we uh, we, we've been handling turnarounds with him for a long time, so it was very important for us to be able to to be uh, pretty efficient in that regard. Uh, so I, uh, I acquired uh, for the company a few softwares like Conformalizers, uh, which we've been using quite extensively. So it ends up being a half a day, a few hours, depending uh, how, it, uh, how, how late we're in the process, if it's mixed or not. Uh, And it can be difficult when we are actually doing ADR on one version and then we're up to a next one and we've got to to release new documents. But but that's why we try to make it as much uh, simple as possible Mm -hmm. in the circumstances.
0: Part of this all comes from the fact that Jean-Marc is very much a homebody. He wants to work in his home and just do his stuff and get it done sort of thing part of what makes it work in Montreal uh, is that it allows him to, you know, just maybe once a week go and visit the other picture editors or once a week come and see the sound mix or something like that. And so he needs to know that anything that started in a certain direction is still going in that same direction and hasn't taken a left turn or a right turn. it's been an interesting year for Montreal in that we've had great success with Big Little Lies, and so there was a presence at the Emmys, and then there was great success with Arrival with Denis Villeneuve's film, and all his sound editorial team uh, were off at the Oscars too. So we've had a good, a good year, and I think some of that is we've got this Hollywood-level projects coming here, but there's no, no need to f- apply a Hollywood work model to it, which is not a bad thing. You know, we'd love to have the resources, Mm -hmm. but the fact is people are coming up here because of the money and things have to be streamlined. And it's proving to be fairly efficient and it's working positively for the filmmakers. It's working positively for the producers. Mm -hmm. um, And we're the ones who are sort of scrambling to find find the way to make it work so that it's, you know, still pleasant. It's like we can't just throw another three sound effects editors. There's no money for that. We can't just throw another, you know, a, another week onto onto the budget because there's there's no resources for that either. Um, and as a result, it makes you a little, you'll be a little more creative in, in the way you approach things.
2: One of the things I was wondering about Big Little Lies is like how much I know that producers and, and network execs getting their approvals on stuff if they're far away and they're not involved it just feels like there's this voice of God telling you to do stuff from very far away and and especially like LA, Montreal Like, did you guys have any issues with um, trying to not have that turn into a big problem or, or anything no, like that? No, because
0: it was always Jean-Marc that would interface between the producers, so if he didn't agree with it, there was no point in passing that up the food chain, or down the food chain rather, to us. I think that whole approval relationship is always a question of trust. If you trust the team, if you are multiple times you've worked with them, or or just because of the quality of the, the work that they put out, you know, I think that once the trust is established, The rest of it just becomes, you know, personal preference at that. It's like, I would like to hear the music louder. I would like to see that scene without music. You know, I think after the first couple of episodes, which we did for the TCA screenings uh, last year, uh, I think trust had been established on, I think they realized, okay, we're not getting, it's not going to be the dog's lunch just because we're not with our usual team. So, uh, and I I think we delivered.
3: There are a a few things that being like way apart from each other uh, that is problematic and we, we've got to work on those uh, uh, to, to help to make sure that we have a good communication with the producer. So one of the things I did right from the start was having a direct relationship with the person in charge of the samples, uh, of the post-production in general, so I was able to call uh, Claire Newman, uh, anytime I, I we were talking directly every few days and it's the same thing with uh, the head of, of post Marc Côté. he's he's been very in well contact with, with the production and, and also we, we it's it's difficult because producers there they're far away so they, they don't know what's happening so we need to tell them what's happening we need to tell them, oh look where that's where we are that's where we are at that's what's left and so one of the things we did a few other things like having Source Connect uh, s- uh, with ADR so that we'd be able to to listen to all the ADR recording sessions from here, and also when we were doing the final mix, we were having some Source Connect. So so every all the producers were in a studio uh, in LA watching the same thing as we had and so we then we were entering into a Skype conversation together so we were having discussions so everybody could say anything and we could make any adjustments live and uh, at the end of these sessions uh, usually that was it otherwise we'd come back the day after we'd finish and uh, and but it, it's it's important to consider these uh, these realities of uh, of trying to you know to, to it's, make it closer,
0: it's, yeah. it's definitely evolved. So, I mean, you know, back in the day where we'd have to, you know, send, send prints down. The way we did it was it was it was a workflow we had done. We were working uh, for a couple of years with Sony on a series, and the first time we did it, we said we'll just source connect and we'll we'll lock up the two studios, and they couldn't do it at that point. Source connect wasn't 5.1, so they had to listen to a decoded LTRT. And on top of it, people were getting late because they were stuck on the 305 or whatever. And they were there all, all of a sudden. So the studio here is idle. The studio over there is idle. 45 minutes in, everyone's there. We hit play. They listen to it. We lose sync halfway through because of the technology. It was a cluster of fuck. <laughs> there we go. There's, there's my first swear. Mm. It's pretty good. We made it pretty far. <laughs> um, and then what And ended, what ended up happening, we said, said look, we're going to actually send you a print and the, and the, the master video. And then... Do your playback when you want. We'll keep going. We'll start working on doing the Foley for the M&E. We'll start doing some other, uh, some other. you know, we'll, we'll keep the, the, the machine working. Give us a 30 minutes heads up when you guys are ready to hook up together. And then we lock up everybody together. We do a sync check. Um, now Source Connects f- 5.1. Every so often you might lose sync, but for the most part, you know, we're doing, it's for corrections at this point, it's not for a long playback. So it's, it's usually not too much, too problematic. And it worked out quite well. I mean, the Skype call ended up being the, the hardest thing to manage was when to mute the Skype and not right. to mute Skype. And <laughs> people are, you know, waving flags in front of their camera, trying to get your attention sort of thing because you're listening to the scene back. But what is good about it is that nobody felt like the workflow was really like the actual work that we we're doing on the sound wasn't in any way compromised. They felt confident in doing it. And they were, you know, we, we worked into it so that uh, I'd gone down and scoped out where we were doing the playbacks. Cause we had some issues on another series we had done where, you know, like we were, it was week to week and no joke. One week, they listened with the surround levels. They were set up for cinema as opposed to TV. The next week, they played the whole mix 3 dB down. And so the first five corrections are, can you turn up the wind here? Sure. Can you turn up the wind here? Sure. Can you turn up the gunshot? You sure about that one? That's pretty, it's ripping our heads off. Yeah. <laughs> and I go, are you guys the right playback level? And they're like, oh, we're 3 dB down. Yeah. And so say, let's go back and listen to the first two corrections. And they go, can you turn the wind back down? <laughs> and so we flew out there. We tested a bunch of facilities um, and then gave a list to HBO. They had to approve them for MPAA uh, security reasons to make sure that they were secure facilities. We found one. We ended up being at Formosa in Santa Monica because it was convenient uh, for everyone to travel there. When John Mark's out there, he lives out in Santa Monica. Um, HBO is fairly close. And it ended up being fantastic, and the service we got from them was was. Uh, uh, it was fantastic. They were, they were really, really always on the ball. Mitch, who was our mix engineer at the room, was, was always like right there for us. Really conscientious and that is amazing. You can't buy that. I mean, at any price, that's when, when we have this trust issue because we're not in the room with them wondering what we're hearing. So, yeah, that's good. So, yeah, that's it was really...
2: Encouraging to hear that Source Connect is working at that level.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, know, yeah. I mean, there, there were certain issues because as soon as you put up firewalls and certain security issues, uh, both at both ends, both at Formosa, Formosa and and here, where they had to clear uh, permissions through the server for certain ports. I mean, it just, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's always fun, you know, when they start talking like that, my eyes start rolling. And, <laughs> so, and then it was funny because they send up... Um, uh, Steve Mesner, who's the head of the international department. And so he comes up for the first two MEs, and we're going, you know, we're both like 30 years into this. <laughs> I think we've got the M&E thing covered. We're good. They go, no, no, we're, we'll send them up anyway. And he came up here. It was fantastic. He showed up with like, he would say, okay, from the dialogue from 131.15.17 to 131.15.27, I need that one hit like the smack from the coffee cup. And then I needed, it, I got this roadmap that would take me about an hour to go through the dialogue track and saw it all up and bring it all in and just send it off to Louis. And then Louis could do the M&E all on his own. He'd we'd do it with Steve uh, uh, for, for the first two. And that became this formula. So, you know, this thing we were saying, saying, ah, it's okay, we got it sort of thing. It took all the guesswork out and it actually made it really... Easy and pleasant to to do. So so even the deliverables was this new approach. And, you know, there's a lot of scenes where it's flashbacks or breathing or like all sorts of you know human sounds. And he'd say, no, we want all that in the M&E. It's like, you sure about that? It's Nicole Kidman. You know, it's very specific. And the HBO approach is, any of our directors, we want them to tune in when they're in a hotel room in Moscow. And see the film and recognize the film and not have some critical moment like the breathing that's going over this scene be redone, you know, half-assed just by the dubbing team. Not that dubbing teams do half-assed work, but sometimes they've got financial constraints and they don't have the artistic input from the directors or whatever. And
2: if that material is not there, they might just skip They might just
0: skip it or, Yeah. yeah. And so it's, I think that's really, you know, admirable on HBO's part that they follow through so far as to say that we want directors to be happy with the foreign language dubs of the stuff. You know, I mean, I remember Steve Soderbergh used to send, what was his name, Blake? Uh, Larry. Larry. Larry Blake. And he used to go around and do all the dubs. He'd like supervise, he wouldn't understand the language, but he'd say, no, that's this. And it was the coolest thing. That I thought that was the coolest thing that, that someone followed it through. It started as an artistic project. It will end as an artistic project in all its forms. And that's kind of neat.
3: And... It's interesting, that aspect, because what we learn most of the time uh, in our career with MNEs is that we can't take any chances and we have to remove stuff that might be problematic so that eventually the MNE ends up being a bit clean and and a bit aseptic. But what this guy uh, told us and and suggested was actually to keep the elements from the uh, real of the show and try to to make as much as possible from what was there and bring it into the foreign language and that's kind of a new attitude completely new attitude than what we've learned before so we were very excited to actually uh, do this because we thought that uh, it was a, w- a good way to improve the result of the m and but the risky aspect is that the guy was in the room with us to kind of accept it which is not the case in most cases. So, and the mixers are left alone. So, when they're left alone, should I keep this? Should I remove it? Sometimes they prefer kill it because it's, it's, safe. there's, it's safer yeah. choice. For so for the future, I think it's a good thing to try to kind of change the mentalities about M and E's and trying to keep as much as possible from the original tracks. Yeah, as long as there's no match issue, I think
0: where we became problematic was where. You know, you'd have Nicole butted up against a sentence. I mean, we always had, and we we did have a dialogue option track. Yeah. And there's a couple of times where he sent me stuff on listening. To throw this in the M&E. And then when I was doing it, I sang. I really don't feel good about this. And I could write to him. And he was really responsive. Uh, and I'd say, say, I put that on the dialogue option track. If you want to go back and throw in the M&E, he goes. Says if we're covered, He says says we're covered both ways yeah. this way, so he says the dialogue auction track always does make it to the dubbing mixer, so they, if they want it, they've got it, if they don't want it, they don't. And that was good. But it's nice to it was nice to have that. Do you want to talk a bit about the music in
1: the show? Because it had a lot of uh, famous songs in it. And not only were the songs in it, they were plot devices, and that's not an everyday thing. So well, How did you I'm, guys
0: tackle I'm convinced that? that Jean-Marc picks the score before he reads the script and then he writes, then he writes everything around it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And no.
3: In a lot of cases, actually, in the scripts, he writes down the yeah, title okay, of yeah. the songs so, so that it's obvious we need this song. And sometimes he can even have people sing it, but then it's an obvious choice. So, yeah, well, uh, Jean-Marc, uh, as he does the edit, he's uh, completely uh, surrounded by music all the time. Well, he knows very well music from uh, from uh, multiple periods, and and when it gets to us, he, we have what what's the choice now, but it can always change for few reasons. Uh, one of them being the rights, because he tries the music. If he likes it, if it's good, he's gonna try to convince the producers to actually buy the rights to use it. So uh, it's a kind of a process, and it takes. Uh, Fair amount of time uh, f- uh, to to actually get the approvals. So we we would even mix sometimes with versions that actually we could change after, and uh, because these musics uh, come from uh, uh, sometimes from YouTube or uh, or from his personal uh, sound library, we uh, we usually uh, try to get the uh, a full quality version and we re-edit all the edit that's been done in the picture edit, we redo it in the sound edit so in order to have like a, a well placed uh, music track but his so selection he if if dialogue's first music
0: is a close second and he negotiates even when he had done crazy he had negotiated 650,000 for the music rights which was unheard of for a Quebec production to have $650,000 put into the, the music rights. But he said, no, I want this song, this song, this song, and the story's written out. And we've had it on multiple times. I mean, we did a movie where they'd gotten the okay from the Canadian wing of the record company for Stairway to Heaven, shot with the actor singing Stairway to Heaven with his headphones on, and then it got up to the UK and it got nixed. It ended up, even the, the local producer going to see Robert Plant at a concert getting his way backstage and asked him and, and Plant saying you can have any song you want but not Stairway to Heaven that's that one's sacred <laughs> and so but so he's always music is always really far up there and in one of the, you know one of his experiences Jean-Marc's experiences that we know was not a good one was um, with young Victoria where he wanted to use the music of Sigur Rós the Icelandic band and he played it on set he was playing it on set at Kensington Palace and at the where they were shooting all these beautiful you know in the gardens uh, in, in London and he's blasting Seager Ross from these beakers to get everyone in the mood and then he didn't get to use it in the, the film and a conventional score was to some extent imposed upon. Um, to this day it was not the movie he wanted to make. He wanted to do that because the music to him was just as important as all the rest of the story. So you know, when he when he starts slugging stuff in, we don't always get the rights. But you can be sure someone's been fighting for the rights for that version of that song since the day he put it in. It's like, like
3: actually, for the record, this experience of Young Victoria for the music was the last time that John Mark dealt with score. Oh, and that's his formula, and that's and that's what works. And, and also, uh, wait, 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 also the fact that he uses uh, big tunes, mm-hmm. like they have that have a history and that have feelings and that mean something. And that he puts it on picture and he plays with the, the, these music that are really strong with the emotions that this, the characters have. He mixes these two, so it's part of the magic and the power of, of, of his filmmaking. Yeah, it's cool
1: because when you hear certain pieces of music, you bring your own history to that piece of music with you into it, but he manages to make your own history of that part of almost the plot of the show. He's really good at that. The one piece of music I'm going to call it, I'm assuming it was music, in the episode, I believe it was Once Bitten. Uh, there's a montage at the beginning and you keep hearing this kind of screech. I'm not sure if it's a scream or a guitar. Yeah, yeah. And then it stops, but then it comes back later in the episode and almost makes you jump out of your chair yeah. because it's coming right out of a quiet scene and then all of a sudden, nah! And I think... That it's, happens maybe three the one, times? Or? It's the
0: one where she dreams Renata is pushing her over the cliff, yeah, yeah, yeah. The cliff yeah. edge. Yeah, 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 no, it's part of the music, yeah, and it's all, it's, he's used it as a sort of a sound effect and as a, it's, he's yeah, he's really good at that. He's, he's just, uh, Contrast. and he's, and loops, he'll do loops, he'll do like these consistent loops that you're going, Is this ever going. It's funny because he always gives us, uh, back in the day he gave us CDs, now he gives us maybe a playlist of the music. Um, usually when we start the project, so it's already, so we're starting the project, you, you know that all this music is already part of a bank that he's been thinking about since way before picture started shooting. And there was one of the songs that I heard in the, I can't even remember which song it is now, but in Big Little Lies that I loved it in the show, and then I hold, heard the whole full version with the choruses and the bridge and all that. And I hated the song, <laughs> but I like Jean-Marc's version of it chopped down with loops in it and stuff like that. So he's, he, some of it, he transforms quite a bit, you know, and he's actually got, it's amazing how much uh, access he's got to new music because, you know, he, he, he knows all the old stuff, but then, you know, Sophie and Stevens there's, and stuff like that. There's, there's some... a lot
2: of music in that show where I was like, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to go and look for it. Yeah. <laughs> Just, I thought... Not just the songs that were recognizable, but yeah, I was like, this show has great music and it like interesting and makes you curious about it and it works in the story and you wonder about the daughter who's always playing the tunes. And It's like, oh, she's a she's a weird kid, you know. It gives like that that's extra dimension. That's a good dimension. example.
3: The daughter, she like that's that's Jean-Marc. He 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 insisted on on having the kid have uh, a, a iTunes and it's on. Her, uh, so she's she's starting it, it. she's pulling the volume, it's playing back in the room. Who's that person uh, handling uh, the music? The the girl's uh, (laughs) playlist. Who's that guy behind that playlist? (laughs)
2: <laughs> like she's a very sophisticated child exactly, exactly but did, did he uh, does he think about like oh when is it going to be sourced and when is it not and and how very precisely. that's going to be done so he's oh, yes. sort of like oh yeah and built everything.
0: built right into the guide because yeah, well, there's it's, interesting it's choices yeah again.
3: it's always in the room yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes it kind of leaves true. but i found but, uh, i found in an, uh, I, I don't know
0: if you as a mixer you, you see this but i f- i find people are using the word sour a lot yeah. these days i mean oh, yeah. it's oh my god yeah it's coming it's like it's becoming uh, every show <laughs> it's just sort of like, it's scores because it's starting score it's ending source it's starting source it's ending score or there, there there are some where both elements have kept you've kept the bottom end of the score version of it yeah. but you've still got some mid-rangey reverbed Version in the center speaker yeah. as playing back in the radio in sort your, of thing.
2: In Big Little Lies, it works great because you assume that these very rich people have wicked home stereo systems. So you're just like, it's just like it's playing in the background yeah. so perfectly.
3: <laughs> yeah, 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 But it's less obvious because it's in a room. It's distant. It's reverby. Yeah. It's even mono sometimes. It's like it's not like music. Mm-hmm. It's it's like music in a room. So it's, it's completely different but the effect is still the same a yeah. bit. Yeah. I think that something really interesting about that
1: show is from the soundtrack point of view, it's not, uh, you know, like Transformers. Like, the, people aren't watching it and thinking about the sound work that went into it because it melts into the story and it matches the story. And the way you treated ambiences in particular, I think, was really interesting.
3: Yeah, well, there's a big base of ambience on that show because uh, the fact that it happens uh, close to the seashore and all the houses are are at different places. So the sea uh, was a very particular character of, of the show. So uh, the fact to, to build a soundtrack with ambiences that reflect all these realities of the show sits as a base on which we can... Uh, build uh, and put other stuff. And
0: there was even a, a a logical progression to it. Reese's house was the closest to the crashing waves, so it was always fairly present even in their kitchen. Uh, you know Shailene was the one who lived in town and so her, her ambience was more city and there wasn't very much of the waves, wave sound. And then when you get to you know like Laura Dern's character, uh, Renata, she's the richest of the bunch of them and so they're overlooking all these other houses down below and so they have the distant sort of wave sounds and Martin had gone out there for a better part of two weeks, three weeks to record. Yeah, two weeks. Yeah, so that was a, a intricate part of it so I don't know if you want to talk about the recording process because you guys had, you had some multiple setups.
3: Yeah, well uh, months uh, before uh, the shooting we actually had access to the script so we were able to go through the scripts and, and notice uh, all the places were, that were actually taking place and uh, so uh, I was able to do a trip around and at different times of the day and, and, and pick up uh, some, some ambiences at different times of the day, different perspective from the seashore. And uh, all this also I did uh, with the uh, using surround microphones. Uh, so we, we were using a double MS which is very uh, realistic uh, field recording technique but it's also in surround. So when we came up to the mix uh, we, we brought back these five tracks, uh, prints, and, uh, the, so we use them, and even though it, 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 really looks real, but it has a lot of stuff in the surrounds, so but were, we don't notice it.
1: Were you decoding prior to mix or at the mix?
3: No, we were decoding prior to mix, yes. And was it just ambiences that you were getting? Uh, mostly ambiences, yes. Uh, I had the occasion to go into a, a house, that was used for the film, like precisely the Nicole Kidman's house. So I was there for a few hours. I was able to do all the doors and, uh, and the stairs and the uh, lighting and specific things on that place, but also the ambience in front and the back and the surroundings. Uh, and that's, mostly it was the ambiences that we collected there, yeah.
0: Brendan uh, Brendan who had done the location recording for, uh, so was there on set with all the actors and actresses. And Jean-Marc had an interesting set of parameters to work with, and one of which is Jean-Marc is very uh, sort of cinema real, you know, very very uh, you know shoot off the cuff. Uh, All of a sudden, it'll be like we're shooting over there, even though there's no lighting over there, and it's like if the camera's not moving the way, it's like give me the camera, I'll take, I'll do the camera movement, sort of thing. So he's very hands-on. There was a particular scene at one point where uh, Maddie, uh, Reese Witherspoon's character, is talking to her daughter, uh, to Abby in, the, in the, the room, and they weren't projecting enough. So normally, you know, so, so, so silence is critical to getting, you know, a good recording out of it. Well, not on a Jean-Marc film. So the, what he did was he went over and they were at the house by the seesaw, he opened the door so that they would up their performance. Of course, sonically, it was a nightmare to try and deal with afterwards, but it ended up giving what is reality. It's, it's tougher for me. It's tougher for Brendan. It's tougher for Marte and Thomas, the dialogue editor. But at the end of the day, it's what's right for the show. You know, like it's a, a sort of a breaking the rules to get that performance. And the one thing which jean Mark he's very much about the 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 location sound being kept as long as possible. Uh, he he works very hard to get those performances. And most of his films are very much. You know their personal journeys from crazy, um, you know, to Young Victoria to Wild to Demolition, and definitely with Big Little Lies, they're these huge character arcs that you know. I, hate, I usually hate those artsy sort of terms, but they're very critical transformations of all of the characters. And so when he works hard to get it on camera, he's definitely going to fight, fight tooth and nail to keep it right till the end. And if. If he opened the door and you end up having the see or the traffic, or he said no, I want the fridge to be on so the light goes on at the right time, and they didn't have time to re, you know, rejig it with fake lighting in the in the fridge, or it was someone's real fridge that was stocked that didn't want food to go bad, then so be it. You're going to live with that fridge, and that's part of it. And don't you know, don't try and change it. or are not calling it for ADR just for the sake of having clean a clean recording. So you once you accept that, you know, and get through the grief period. <laughs> yeah,
2: and if you have a director who has a sense of the technical problems that may be being created? Does that help you, like, talk about it later with them and have it doesn't, realistic it, it expectations? Doesn't,
0: I, think, uh, I think I'm okay with it if they own it. You know, I really like that expression. You know, in French we say assume. Um, if they own it, would it make my life easier had they turned off the fridge, had they kept the door closed? Yeah, it would have made my life easier. Would they have gotten the performance they wanted? No. And when you end up seeing... I think it was what, four out of five of the principal actors get nominations at the Emmys. I think it speaks for itself. Yeah. You can't really argue with that. you know. You obviously, what they did, got there. One of the toughest scenes for ADR, um, or one of the only real big scenes we did, we had to do some of Maddie's lines in the episode one on the seaside when she's talking to Ed, her husband. And Reese came in twice and said, first time came in and said, you got to be kidding me, and, and didn't do it. And the second time came in and tried her best and couldn't get through it and came in a third time and said, I hope you guys, you know, you're asking me to do something, which is probably gonna be the hardest ADR scene I've ever done. And she nailed it. Like she brought her performance up and we're talking seven months after the, after the shoot or eight months after the shoot to put herself in that headspace on that beach um, and come back with that same, you know, bordering on tears, sort of, uh, you know, pleading almost with her husband, um, saying what she's lost since the kids are growing up sort of thing. It was, it was amazing. It was really, really touching. and It was an- amazing to hear her as an actor say, I hope you know what you're asking me for, but I, I hope I can meet, I hope I can raise up to the bar.
3: That's cool. That's a, an interesting example because like Jean-Marc brings these actors right in front of the sea at about 10 feet from the sea and makes a a scene with two actors that have like a strong arguments together (laughs) and 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 actually uh, the waves knocking splashing makes it impossible to use ultimately although we we tried as much as possible to use the original one and play with alts and things like that but ultimately we ended up deciding uh, with Jean-Marc to to actually redo the scene entirely in, in, in ADR. But my point is that these scenes that are so real, to have to redo them, we absolutely need to make it perfect. Otherwise, it's really risky. And, and then at the mix, we would tend to sometimes go back to the original at some situation where Jean-Marc would really prefer having the raw performance. So intercutting
2: and, in one scene, ADR, and then back. Oh, to that's the constant.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, we we did syllables, we did you know like things that were mispronounced or something like that. It was uh, it was a, a weave job at the best of times, but it was you know. And that particular
2: scene on the beach was that. I'd say it was
0: 90% ADR, but I think I remember keeping a couple of yeses and stuff from Ed and just... uh, And sometimes it's, you know, I mean, I always always say, you know, Foley and ADR is smoke and mirrors at the best of times. You know, they're, they're necessary, but most people don't. They should never realize that they were done, right? And so it's always a question of, so if you can get in like half a syllable of the original word and then weave it into the rest of the ADR just having that beginning or end of a sentence takes it the question out of the mind of the spectator. They they all of a sudden buy it hook, lung and sinker, because there now is this correlation between what was said before. And sometimes it's a matter of, you know, going and just grabbing a breath just leads into that ADR or a breath that's in the middle of the ADR that that wasn't done, and just having a little bit of reality. That's that's the way I found it. I mean, I'm not sure how all other mixers work. Yeah,
2: I think some people yeah. might think that's counterintuitive almost because you're like, well, well keep, it's easier to do keep, the keep other one way. Piece. Yeah,
0: my bar is always at If I can listen back to the show and I forget that it was ADR, then we're we're getting we're getting close.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm thinking back on that scene, and if there's any moment where I was like, was that an ADR line, which is like a professional problem, that everybody in our industry probably has when they watch movies is yeah. like hmm, that was certainly not that scene like yeah it never that,
0: tricked to me that that was ADR
2: you're just really in the moment in that one for sure high
0: five Martin yeah there we go so,
3: as always we say that ADR is is uh, the good work of uh, five six people uh, it's the actor very important that does is performance at that day that is able to actually go back to the the day of the shoot. There's a director also that's very important in ADR to able to to kind of play around and to, to to level the performance and obviously the person that records it that is very important because if the microphone is not well placed, if it's the wrong microphone, if it doesn't tone same with the same tone than what was there before very important, and obviously sounded it and mix. So, so and if one person on, in that chain does not do his job or can't do, it's not always his fault, obviously, the person that... Uh, then we will see it in the result. So that puts a lot of pressure on everybody, and especially yeah. for a scene like it, the one we've we've, ta- we've been talking the car, about.
0: The funny one was uh, with the tough ones to sell were car scenes because there's less activity happening. So often it's amazing how much the Foley can help sell the ADR, it's amazing how much the ambiences can help sell the ADR. Aside from all the work that's done on the actual ADR and the recordist and the director and all that, and we've seen directors, they have a thing about oh, I, I, ADR always sucks. I hate ADR, something like that. You know, I, I get it. We all we all love the production sound. We, we're we're all on board with that. But they go sort of go in there with this, um, you know, you know, sort of defeatist attitude, and then as a result, that gets transmitted to the actors. So the actors saying, well, if not, you're not going to use it anyway because you like the original. Then you know, what's the point doing? You know, and they, or they're trying to fix something that's, you know, oh, I always wanted them to whisper that. Yeah, except the line before they're, they're yelling it and the line after they're yelling it. So we put the whisper in that you wanted, that you always wanted, but there's no progression now towards that. And then it's hard to say. And then you say, yeah, you know, it sounds like ADR. Well, yeah, it sounds like ADR. There, there, was, there was middle ground somewhere in there. So sometimes it's, it's, it really is a team effort.
2: The one thing I realized as I was watching the show was how much you guys used, like, split edits on the ambiences, like so pre-lapping an ambience before the cut uh, as a way of kind of um, disorienting the story or disorienting the perspective. I don't know how, how to express that, but yeah. it sort of helped with the dream sequences and keeping people on edge. That was my experience watching it. It was just kind of, like, mixed up your sense of what's real and what's not real, and I just thought that was such an effective choice to be making and it seems like it was used a lot in that show
0: i think you just described the whole sound post process it was <laughs> it was dis, it was disorienting i don't
2: know what's real and what's Surreal. not
0: real <laughs> um was that pre
1: uh was that designed ahead of time or was that something you discovered in the mix
0: uh, i think that i think the the intent was always designed, uh, a lot of it is Jean-Marc. Um, I think the execution of it was, was Martin, um, you know, as to what was woven in ahead of time and what wasn't.
3: The fact that uh, we had uh, Paul at the picture edit along with Jean-Marc to actually kind of uh, put the bases of the, the sound design during the picture edit, actually a lot of these things were already done at that stage. And uh, so, it for us, at the during post-production, it was, it was not a question of, of putting a sound there. It was more into other details, the sensitive stuff, and trying to make the ideas even clearer for the audience. Throughout these films, I, I realized that he, he builds on emotions as, as the, the, the scenes pass. We have an emotion, and then, boom, we cut it, and then we go to the other side of a, a story. But... The spectator still has the emotion he had in the previous scene. And and Jean-Marc really builds on that. So he he takes the emotions we have on a scene, brings it to the next one. And then when we have an emotion, cuts it, you know, and then goes, uh, he he plays with the spectator a lot. And and try to uh, put on comfort, as you said earlier, it's like, you're a bit like disoriented, and it's kind of like, uh, it's twisted a bit. Like we say, we put some sound sometimes just to distract, but to, just to, uh, uh, to, to think about something else. But the idea is to hide. We use this sound to hide something yes, else. sometimes
0: I think it protects the spectator too, because I think, you know, as we were talking about before, you know, with the rape scenes, the rape scenes or the beating, you know, where the, 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 the punch and stuff like that, they would have been over the top violent had we put those sounds in. And he, he, he consciously keeps takes those sounds out and says, no, it's going to be the room tone of her in the new apartment by herself thinking of the time Perry hit her sort of thing. And if you'd flash back to it and it had been realistic, it would have just been just too much sort of thing. And as a result, it, it has this emotional impact without having this physical disgust that you might have from having heard the act happen. And, you know, like the rape scenes were like that. They were all basically just, you know, they are visual flashbacks. And he does a lot of that. And he's he's like, there's, I don't know how many times they're in there, there's these short 10 frame, 15 frame, 20 frame, less than a second flashes of stuff just to, it's like, did I just see her as a young kid? Or did I just see
3: so-and-so in that room with them? Like, you're not sure exactly what's going on, you know? Yeah, and as a sound designer and a mixer, if if the spectator catches or, or or sees that we added a sound or that we try to create some sound design around a certain scene, it, it might uh, kind of distract the audience, and, and and the audience might realize there was some intentions behind. What what, what Jean-Marc really likes to do is try to keep the the, uh, the actors by themselves, and, and our role as a sound designer and mixer is more to try to make it believable, make it that we, we, we never added anything and that we actually letting these uh, characters just live their life and that we never, we, we don't add on it. And in, in, neither does he as a, as a director. He won't exaggerate stuff. He, he, he's always like, we've, been all, we've known him for long times. He's always used the word less is more. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's like the less you put, the, the better it stands. And, uh, and 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 it ends up being very powerful, and that's kind of some things we have to acknowledge: is that the result, the way it's built, and how it's done, and the simple uh, the fact that it's pretty simple and real. It's it's kind of str- wanna,
0: really strong. I want to coin a phrase. I want to call it like superfluous minimalism,
3: or. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, something that I found when I was watching it was that, as you mentioned earlier, there's lots of. Uh, what do you call it? Scores music? Yeah. Uh, but the an actual score doesn't really exist, but the ambiences are kind of becoming that score. And there's scenes, uh, the one that popped out to me was when uh, Nicole Kidman and her husband in the show are at the Shrink's house. And they're talking and it is a, a very intense and uncomfortable scene. And in almost every other scene in the show, there's loud ambiences of waves and stuff. And that one, there's just. Uh, I'm not. Did you pull it out as the scene went on, or was it just really quiet?
0: Well, that location is the, the ocean's supposed to be down at the bottom of the end of the street. So when he opens the door, you do hear it. And there are parts where you, where you do hear it. But I think that one. Got a little bit quieter than the other one. You're talking like a, when we're into episode five or six. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, it definitely has become a little bit of a, this haven, especially when Perry's not there. The first couple are a little more realistic when Perry's at the the psychologist's office, but definitely the the later ones, especially you know when you know when she's saying you know you are in danger, you do have to leave, you do have to get an apartment. Uh, they became they were they were probably a little bit quieter than. The other the other scenes as far as the presence of the ocean or the outside or whatever one
2: little moment in one of those scenes at the therapists where you hear an external ambience of like just ordinary street activity and i love that little moment there because it was like in every other place where nicole kinman is she's surrounded by like this pristine empty space right like And then when she has to go to the therapist, she's like, real people. (laughs) The messy world comes in. Yeah, and I just like, I just, that little moment, I didn't, you know, think about it that consciously at the moment. But I just, you felt that like, oh, she's in among the real people in that one moment. I was like, there's so much that can happen in an atmos, you know, that if you just have the right little, like, nanosecond to throw that detail in it. can without yeah, it this, being distracting. I mean yeah, it's, it's, always, it distracting.
0: it's always it's always you know it's always the key like does is that is that pause more powerful without it or with yeah. more powerful with
1: yeah. it sort of thing. Yeah, I guess you could go um, both ways. Yeah. yeah.
0: I got to say the locations themselves kind of played to like this weird dynamic because with the exception of the blues blues cafe which is which was first of all just a FYI completely studio green screen. No, oh, no kidding. Which we didn't even know because we got we got it already treated. The coffee shop. The coffee shop is completely green screen. Yeah. Oh wow! I thought yeah, you yeah, were yeah. about to
2: say it was a terrible place to shoot because <laughs> it was right on the ocean. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, completely the opposite. Um, no, no, it was it was neon buzzes and uh, and studio lighting oh, okay. to deal with in that in that scene. Wow! But the with the exception of the Blues Boost Cafe and the school environment, a lot of the show happens in these little sort of. Vacuums that were, their home, her home, his home, uh, which was which is neat because it allowed the waves to play out. You know, it allowed the crickets to be mm-hmm. on, uh, and so and so It allowed the street sounds when you're with Shalene. Um, you know, to, with Jane to contrast uh, to, to contrast yeah. and to, to establish. Okay, she's more, not inner city, but definitely more in the town as yeah. opposed to one of these luxurious houses. Oh, yeah, that's cool.
1: I was recently listening to a radio uh, broadcast and they were interviewing the movie critic for the New Yorker and he was talking, they asked him what uh, he was, had been kind of I don't know, floating his boat recently, what he'd been really into and he talked about Big Little Lies and how he was mad at himself for not waiting till he could binge watch it because he was just, his whole week in between episodes was all he was saying is when's is that next episode coming out and how much he loved it and... Uh, and then when the Emmys came and it was nominated for everything, like, I think it, it's a really—it it, it was one of these rare shows. Uh, maybe Game of Thrones also from HBO can do that, but uh, that kind of grabs the whole pop culture, and uh, everybody's talking about it. I can see, it and oh, you haven't seen it yet? Oh, you get leave the room because we're going to ruin things for yeah. you because it actually had plot twists and spoilers that could be uh, mm-hmm. done. And uh, I'm really jealous that you guys got to work on such an awesome, cool show.
0: This is a uh, this is a. Uh... An internet uh, thing, so it's not going to work too well. But I've got a picture of my two sons and one of the girlfriends watching the final episode, and all three of them have their hands to their forehead, like <laughs> "What's going to happen?" sort of thing. And it was just—I uh, just loved that. It was my my favorite picture because it was, it was the whole series was like that. You know, people uh, were were asking, "Can you tell us what's going to happen?" I said, "No, I can't tell you what's going <laughs> to happen. You have to tune in and see it." Uh, it was just one of those great series. So.
1: Well, thanks very much for sitting down and talking to us about uh, Big Little Lies. It was a great show, and it was great to hear you guys talk about it. Thanks sure. For... All right.
0: welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Tone Vendors. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to tonevendorspodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at